All right, there we go. All right, let's uh, open in prayer this morning, Ken. Oh God, we thank you for another Lord's Day to come together and to, to learn your word, uh, to hear it proclaimed, taught, and preached, uh, to confess it together, to sing praises to you. Lord, we thank you for this gift and for the freedom we have to come and do this. Uh, we pray, Lord, that our time would be productive and that um, you would send your spirit to work and that you would um, embed all of the truth of your word deep in our hearts and in our minds and that it would change how we love you, and that it would change how we live for you. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking in uh, chapter 22 this morning. So Luke 22. Uh, We're, of course, continuing our series in the sacraments this morning, and we're on our second section of our treatment of the Lord's Supper, which is in uh, the part in which we're looking at various parts of Scripture. All right, so we're looking at um, certain Scripture passages that relate to the Lord's Supper. And again, that passage we're looking at now is Luke chapter 22. And uh, we're going to be focusing specifically on verses 14 through 20. But I'm going to read a little bit more than that just to give us some context. Uh, but before we look at the passage, I just want to review a little bit about what we talked about last week. Uh, you'll remember that um, in our uh, baptism section of this series, right, one of the major uh, theses that we were seeing in Scripture and that we were trying to, to prove and to sort of build upon and expand was the idea that uh, circumcision and baptism are very closely related, Right? So in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of inclusion in the visible church. And now in the New Testament, baptism is the sign of inclusion in the visible church. So there's that tight connection there. And we saw in Scripture that in the Old Testament, circumcision had the same function as baptism does for us. And there's a tight connection there that we see, for example, the Apostle Paul making and so on. Uh, So we, we argued that pretty carefully, and I think you all remember that. Uh, What we're doing now in our section on the Lord's Supper is we want to understand that the Lord's Supper, like baptism, doesn't just pop into the church out of nowhere. It has connections. Just like baptism is not something completely new, but corresponds to circumcision. So the Lord's Supper is not something that's completely new, but it also corresponds to an Old Testament sacrament. And that Old Testament sacrament is the Passover. So we talked about the Passover last week. We talked about what it means, uh, how there's uh, in the Passover, right, you've got the concepts of feasting and salvation and sacrifice and joy in the Lord and all of that kind of all wrapped into one. Okay, and so we've got those same ideas showing up in the Lord's Supper, which we'll be looking at uh, this morning. But the other thing that we noted is that in the Gospels and also in Paul, there's a very close connection there that the authors make between the, the Lord's Supper and the Passover. Right, we saw those are not two unrelated things. For example, in John chapter 1, right, we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there John has in mind the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the Lamb led to the slaughter. But he also has in mind then that Lamb is not just any Lamb, but it's the Passover Lamb. And if we want it even more clear than that, 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So you remember, we talked about this last week. Christ is the Passover lamb. That's what the Passover was pointing to. And so it makes perfect sense then that the sign of the Lord's Supper here that we have in the New Testament also corresponds to the Passover Supper. You see, there's a connection not only between the things that those meals were symbolizing, but also between the meals themselves, and they relate. And we're going to see that here in Luke today. So let's look at Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to read starting with verse 7, and we're going to go through until verse uh, 23. So starting with verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it would be who was going to do this. All right, so it's in this passage, right, we have very familiar words. We hear these words every time the Lord's Supper is administered, right? These are called the the words of institution. They're the words that Jesus gave as he institutes the Lord's Supper for the very first time with his disciples, okay? Now, there are uh, two major sections to this passage that I want to look at uh, this morning. Uh, They're divided pretty nicely in my ESV copy of the scriptures here. Um, The first section is the preparation for the Lord's Supper, And then the second section is the institution of the Lord's Supper. So the preparation and the institution. Those are the two sections we read. And so I want to treat them in that order. So firstly then, uh, just looking at the preparation for the Lord's Supper. There's a couple of things that uh, we sort of need to keep in mind as we are looking at this passage. Okay, The first thing we need to recognize is that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper to his disciples, okay, his primary purpose for doing this is not to teach about the sacraments. Now, that might seem sort of like 
you know, contradictory. Like, hold on a second. You just said this passage is not about the sacraments. And yet we're now in a sacrament series talking about how this passage relates to the sacraments. No, that's, that's not what I mean. Okay, what I mean is this. Jesus' primary purpose here is not to teach about the sacraments. The sacraments are actually secondary here. The Lord's Supper itself is somewhat secondary. Because the Lord's Supper that Jesus is instituting here is a sign and seal of the greater thing that Jesus is talking about. See, what Jesus is concerned to talk about in this passage here, what, the reason why he's instituting the Lord's Supper is the real thing that this passage is about. What this passage is about is it is about the person and the work of Christ. It is about what he is about to do. That he's about to suffer. That he is about to actually be the Passover lamb. That's what this is about. And the supper is pointing to that, which is why he is instituting it here. Okay? So let's get that straight before we even start here. This is not primarily about sacraments. It's only secondarily that. It's primarily about the work of Christ. And the way that Jesus here, the second thing to note, just by way of introduction, is not only that Jesus is primarily concerned about his work here, but secondly, that the way that he describes his work to the disciples here as he institutes the supper is he describes it in profoundly Old Testament language. All of this here is not new. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, this cup is the new covenant, this cup is poured out for you. None of this is brand new language. This is all rooted deeply in the Old Testament. And so we're going to look at that as we go through this passage. Right? This is not new stuff. Jesus is bringing out through simple words what the Old Testament says in the, the prophets. Okay, All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about the preparation for the, the Passover. Notice here how clear it is in verses 7 through 13 that Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover feast when the Lord's Supper is instituted. You see that? We noted last week that there are some who try to say Jesus didn't institute the supper on the night of the Passover. All right? Well, you just read this for a second. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. I don't know how they get around that. <laughs> That's pretty clear. That's very clear. Verse 13. And they went and found the room just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. All right, so Luke is going out of his way here to explain that they are partaking of the Passover feast. The lamb is going to be slaughtered on Thursday night, all right? And they're going to inst Jesus is going to institute the supper on that very night, all right? So this is setting the context here. Luke is doing this on purpose. He's very careful to explain. Jesus is not going to institute the supper out of nowhere on just some random night. But he's going to do it on the Passover. And he's going to do it during the very Passover feast itself. Because Jesus is going to show that this is connected to the Lord's Supper. Because he is the Passover lamb that the Passover feast was actually looking forward to. Okay? Alright. So that's the, uh, something about the preparation. The next thing about the preparation, and the last thing, is uh, notice... Uh, where the disciples are. Now, it doesn't actually show up in this text. You have to go back some verses to see this. But 
the disciples in Jesus right now, they are on a place called Mount Moriah. Uh, this is where they're partaking of the supper. Now, Mount Moriah is not just some random mountain. But that's the very mountain that goes all the way back in the Old Testament to a number of different events. And chief among those events is the story of Abraham and Isaac. I'm sure you remember the story about Abraham. Well, it's not a story, sorry. I'm sure you remember the historical account of Abraham as he is commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. You remember that? Now, child sacrifice is not really something that God condones, and it would have been thoroughly uh, surprising for Abraham to hear Yahweh command such a thing, that he would sacrifice Isaac. But nonetheless, Abraham exercises profound faith because he gathers the wood, right? He gathers all the stuff he needs. He takes Isaac, his only son, and he brings Isaac to Mount Moriah, where God commands him to sacrifice Isaac. And you can just imagine the agony Abraham would be going through in that situation as he's, he's got his son and the donkey. They leave the servants behind. They go up onto the mountain. Isaac's like, hey, Dad, we don't have a sacrifice. What are we going to do here? We've got all the stuff. We don't have a lamb. And Abraham's like, no, God will provide. Just wait and see. Profound faith. And Abraham brings Isaac up onto the top of the mountain. He sets up the altar. He's got Isaac laying on the altar, and he takes out his knife. And he's got it raised up over Isaac. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think Isaac would be very pleased with this situation. He's not just sitting there saying, okay, Dad, do what you want. No, he's probably screaming in terror. And as the father hears the sounds of his son screaming in terror, holding the knife over him, just at the last nick of time, an angel of the Lord says, hold on, stop. Don't do that. And then God provides a lamb. A substitution. A substitutionary lamb. To die in the place of Abraham's son. There is serious symbolism going on here. Because Luke does not record that these events happen on Mount Moriah for no reason. Just to give us a naked historical fact. But this happens specifically because that event of Abraham and Isaac was pointing forward to the true substitutionary lamb that Jesus would be. So notice that not only is, is Luke connecting Jesus and the institution of the supper and Jesus' person and work to the Passover, but he's also connecting it to Abraham and Isaac and to serious types of Christ in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. So there is a lot of biblical theology going on here. None of this is something that we should just overlook. All right, so that's the significance of the place. You can see there's some rich stuff going on here. We could go into a whole lot more of this uh, if we wanted to, but we don't have time. That's the preparation, okay? All of these connections, Luke is setting this all up to show that Jesus' work is not something that is just coming out of nowhere. It is thoroughly and intricately connected with all of the Old Testament from Abraham and all the way through through Moses' period with the Passover. All right, verse 14. Here we get to the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. All right, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus, as he's 
getting ready to institute the supper, as he's getting ready to explain his person and work to his disciples, he tells them he has been eagerly awaiting this time. Now, sometimes I've wondered why he was eagerly waiting. Like, like what's the purpose for that? And, and I think it's this. You know, Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, as he taught the people, as he taught the disciples, right? One of his favorite things to do was to teach in parables, right? Taught lots of parables. And sometimes when we think about parables, we have this idea that, you know, Jesus taught in parables because uh, he wanted to use helpful illustrations so that people would more easily understand what he was saying. And then, you know, sometimes we hear that, and that's not, that's not actually quite right. Because what Jesus himself said about his parables was exactly the opposite. The disciples asked him, they said, why do you speak in parables? And you know what he said? He didn't say, oh, it's because I want more people to understand what I'm saying. So I use lots of good illustrations like the good preachers do. No, what he says is that I speak in parables so that people will be confused by what I'm saying. And it's like, wait a second, Jesus wanted people to be confused? Well, no, what he's saying is that people will be confused by what he's saying because they need the special illumination of the Holy Spirit so that they can understand what he's saying. And so Jesus, throughout his whole earthly ministry, not only is he speaking in parables, but just as he's teaching in general, is saying all kinds of things that people can't understand. And while he does sometimes hint very directly at what he's going to do, that he's going to suffer and that he's going to die, most of the time he speaks much, in much more flowery language that is hard to understand in the moment. But then when you look back, you actually understand what he's saying. And so Jesus then, throughout his ministry, even with his disciples, has not come out and said as explicitly as he could have who he is and what he's going to do. Now he does. He has been eagerly awaiting this moment where he's going to come right out and connect his person and work to the explicit statements of the Old Testament. Not that he hasn't done that before, but now he's going to do it succinctly and most clearly. And so that's what he does here. Notice how he goes about doing this. Verse 17. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So as Jesus explains to them more clearly his person and work, he does it in two ways. He uses bread and he uses the cup of wine. Now, when Jesus does this, when he talks about his bread, or excuse me, the bread being his body, that's not a new idea. What he is doing is he is referring to the Old Testament... The idea that the body is one of the featured and most important parts of a sacrifice. And the other part of a sacrifice is not just the body, but it is the blood. The body 
and the blood. Those are the two parts of a sacrifice in the Levitical sacrificial laws. And we can actually see this if we were to look at Hebrews chapter 10, where Hebrews talks about the fact that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And yet now Christ has been given a body which may be broken and his blood shed as a sacrifice. Okay? So Hebrews 10 uh, talks about body and blood being connected as the two parts of the sacrifice, as well as we see this in Isaiah, like Isaiah 53. The point that Jesus is making here is that his body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed. And all of this is going to be as a sacrifice. This is explicit Old Testament language. This is not new. Explicit Old Testament language. That's the significance of his body here but then he, and his blood. But then he also talks about the fact that his blood is a cup poured out. And it is the cup poured out, which is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this concept of the new covenant is also not new. Jesus is not just coming up with this on the spot. Jesus here is explicitly referring and alluding to a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. And here's uh, what it says. This is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen to the words of the prophet. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So when Jesus talks about this new covenant idea, this is what he has in mind. Now, when he talks about new covenant, you want to understand some things here. New covenant is, of course, distinguished from the idea of the old covenant. Right? And the old covenant, as Jeremiah talks about it, is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant with Moses, the covenant dispensation under the person uh, and work of Moses as the mediator. Okay? And what, the, what the, uh, Jeremiah says here is that this new covenant that is coming is not going to be like the covenant with Moses. Now when Jeremiah says this, he doesn't mean that the new covenant is going to be so radically different that it has zero connections with Moses. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that there is going to be a new covenant that is distinguished from the covenant with Moses. There will still be connections, but there will be important differences. And what Jesus says is he says, guys, disciples, my body is about to be broken and my blood is about to be shed. And when that happens, when I am offered... As a sacrifice, when my blood is poured out for you, that new covenant 
that Jeremiah was talking about is going to be inaugurated. That new covenant is coming into effect right then. And what is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? What is the primary distinction between them? It is Christ. Not that Christ was not in the old covenant, but rather the distinction is that in the old covenant, all of the sacrifices were pointing forward to the true sacrifice. In the new covenant, Christ, the true sacrifice, the true body, the true blood, that true sacrifice, he has been offered. See, that's the distinction that is being made here between the old and the new covenants. And Jesus says, he is the one who is going to bring this new covenant to a beginning. He's inaugurating it. It is coming when his body's broken and when his blood is shed. And notice here that as he talks about his blood, he says his blood is the cup which has been poured out for you. This is in verse 20, the last part. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now here again, this language is not something to pass over. This is Old Testament language. For example, in Luke chapter 22, so that we're in the same chapter we're in right now, later in verse 42, Jesus will say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his agony right before he's about to be betrayed, you probably know this line that he says, right? He says, please let this cup pass from me. Please let this cup pass from me. What is a what? Why does he want a cup to pass from him? What's he talking about? Well, Jesus here is using Old Testament language. He's referring back to places like Isaiah 51 that talks about God's wrath being a cup of judgment that is going to be poured out on sinful Israel. And what Jesus is doing here in Luke 22 is he's instituting the supper as he's saying, my blood being poured out. At that event, when my blood is shed, At that event, when my body is broken, at that event, when I am sacrificed, the cup of God's wrath against sin is going to be poured out on me for you. There's the substitution. The wrath that you deserved for your sin is poured out on Christ on the cross for you. That's Old Testament knowledge. That's Old Testament language. That's Old Testament ideas. That's not something new. So just in all of this then, what we can see is as Jesus institutes the supper, he is profoundly explaining his person and work. What is he? He is the sacrifice. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed. The wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath will be poured out on him for you. And so it's in this way that he is the better Adam. This is something Paul is going to bring out in the book of Romans. Because what Paul does for us is he explains to us that Jesus is a second Adam figure. If we go back to the first Adam, Adam, when he was in the Garden of Eden, was in a relationship with God that we call the covenant of works. And in that covenant, Adam had to render perfect obedience to the law of God. 
And if he did, then he would merit eternal life. And not just for himself, but because he was the covenant head of all humanity, if Adam fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works, everybody would have received eternal life as well, not just Adam. Adam goes about his business in the garden. He disobeys. He sins. He falls. And he fell because someone came along and said, take and eat. Take and eat. And those words brought death to him, and it brought death to all of his posterity, namely to all other human beings. See, for Adam, those words, take and eat, were words that brought death. But see, now when you come to the second Adam, now those same words, take and eat, are not words that bring death. But those are words under the second Adam that bring life. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and eat, this is my blood. The words of Christ are transformed. Because what Jesus does is he fulfills what the second Adam couldn't do. Excuse me, what the first Adam couldn't do. Jesus is the second Adam changes those words that once brought death into words that bring life. That's his work. That's what he's doing as that perfect sacrifice that has now come under the new covenant. We'll look more at the words of institution and some of the theological implications in future weeks, but we're out of time this morning. Are there any questions before we finish out? All right, well, if not, then let me uh, close us in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for uh, the scriptures, and we thank especially this morning of Luke, and especially chapter 22 of Luke. Um, Lord, we have um, three distinct accounts in the scriptures that record the institution of the Lord's Supper. And God, we, uh, we thank you for those accounts because it shows us the great importance of this event. Lord, we thank you for this gift of the Lord's Supper and we thank you that it so wonderfully and so remarkably puts on display the person and the work of Christ. Lord, we pray that as we analyze the doctrine of the Supper, as we seek to understand it better, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't get bogged down in the details or in the the theological controversies or in the differing opinions among people, but Lord, that, that the supper would be what it's supposed to be, that it wouldn't be a distraction for, for theological minds, but that it would rather be something that would point us to Christ and to his work. And we pray that it would be an effectual means to signify those truths in the gospel and to seal them upon our hearts and strengthen our faith. Lord, we pray that it would do just that. And we pray that as we continue this series that you give us clarity of thought to understand these things better. And we pray also now that you prepare us for worship this morning to praise your holy name, to sing praises to you, and to hear your word preached. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.